and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Liz Glazer, a comedian, actor, singer, writer, and former law professor who lives in New York. So welcome to the show, Liz. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I mean, we've known each other for a long time now, and I've always enjoyed your scholarship, and now I'm really enjoying your work as uh, an entertainer. I refer to that as my scholarship. Ah, right. Okay. Well, we'll have to talk about that as well. Um, so I, I wonder for listeners who might not be necessarily as familiar with your uh, career trajectory as I am, if you could talk a little bit about your background, sort of where you've been, where you are, and what happened in between. Yeah. Um, so I, I am a comedian, you know, I guess primarily not to undercut any of the other things in the intro, which are all accurate, but like the thing that I've spent most of my time doing the past few years is stand up comedy. And the reason I say that right now is that I do have a joke that I think succinctly summarizes my resume. And so I get on stage, obviously doing stand up comedy, or I guess I hope. And uh, I say, you know, I wasn't always a comedian. I used to be a law professor, which is the typical route to stand up comedy. You know, generally speaking, you go to law school for three years, practice for two, teach for nine, get tenure, give it all up and do stand up comedy. And <laughs> So that is a really quick way of saying the trajectory. Um, I've toyed with like adding in like fail the New Jersey bar, a thing I did. Uh, and I passed the New York bar, which like the proud Leo egocentric part of me requires me to say right after saying I failed the New Jersey bar. But just in the interest of being self-deprecating, I like think about, you know, what can I say in that regard? But in any event... That's the trajectory. I I thought I was going to be, you know, lawyer, law professor, et cetera, uh, I guess, and then started doing comedy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, maybe you could talk a little bit about that because, you know, as as traditional this career path is, oh, you know, yeah. there, there might be some people who, you know, might not right. fully understand exactly how that particular transition took place. No, I get that. I mean, it's generally covered in the pamphlets at OCI. And it's, you know, one of the interviews that you could choose. Uh, and, and of course, like any law firm will tell you about this path. But for those of you who won't have those resources available to you, here's what happened to me. Um, so yeah, so on the transition, I mean, I, I went to law school with the thought in mind that I wanted to be a law professor, I guess, because when I was in college, a professor that I thought was cool uh, was like had a joint appointment in the philosophy department and the and the law school, and I just kind of thought like she seems like Oprah, and I thought that was cool. And I I guess the best approximation of that was like figuring out a way to be at the front of the room. Um, and when I went to law school, I didn't think that that would be possible. I went to a school where, like, I went to the University of Chicago, a great school, um, both in terms, I guess, of like rankings, but also the rigor of the program and people were really smart. And by people, I don't, it's not that I, I don't count myself, like, I don't mean it to be like overly self-deprecating. I just like, it wasn't that I was at the top of my class. It wasn't anything like that. Um, 
And I was not encouraged to be a law professor by anyone at the way that like it, and it wasn't even, I don't even mean that to like single out the school or anything like they were right. <laughs> if I would have said like, oh, I really want to be a law professor. Someone would come back to me and just say, why would you think that? Like you have no chance of getting this job. University of Chicago, definitely the school known for comedy. Uh, yeah, but yes, a very funny school. And that is a joke. Um, so I, yeah, I, I was at a law firm working and I checked the mail one of the days of the two years, just shy of two years that I ended up being there. I worked as a real estate associate at a big law firm in New York and I checked the mail and there was an envelope from Hofstra, which is where you and I met and where I would eventually go on to work. And in this letter there, it was like, I couldn't tell if it was spam or not, but it was basically like, hey, Liz or Elizabeth or whatever, like, uh, you know, we've read this article of yours and we wondered if you wanted to be a law professor, basically. And I'm saying it in my words, but um, but that was kind of the gist of the letter. And I was like, really? And I have like a very kind of Pollyanna way of going about the world in a way, in the sense that. I believe that things can happen to me that just don't make sense. And being a law professor just didn't make sense for my like grade point average or whatever. Uh, I think honestly, the only thing that saved me was that the University of Chicago has a really hard to understand um, way of giving grades such that I believe that the people who hired me at Hofstra didn't understand my grades. And I say this because in later years, like I remember discussing candidates and like, oh, this person may or may not have like the grades, which is a totally reasonable thing for a group of people about to hire a person to teach at their school to, to be talking about. And I'm like, yeah, these are the same people who hired me. They absolutely didn't understand my grades, which in a way is kind of a fine outcome because if you are like, if you're a person reviewing people's grades and you don't understand their grades, I guess you just get a bad grade in understanding grades. There is like a legend at the bottom of the transcript. And, and I say all of this because when I got this, this letter in the mail, I called up, you know, the person whose number was on it. And I was like, Hey, is this spam? And he's like, well, we sent it out to like 10 people. And I was like, okay. Um, so more of like a mass text or whatever. And it was basically that I guess there was like a, a non-traditional hiring method that the school was trying out that year. And they were identifying people who had interesting scholarship, I guess. Uh, and I say, I guess more as, as a dig on my own, like law review comment, which like, I guess, I mean, I, I was pretty obsessed with it when I was writing it. It was like about appropriations, but I, you know, kind of not interest and not like sexy. So anyway, um, so that's how they found me. And, uh, and so I called them back and then, um, I was talking to them. Sorry, I'm like losing my train of thought <laughs> a little bit, but, uh, not for any reason, but, um, but then, oh yeah, yeah. So I sent them my grades, like as the first thing, cause I'm like, well, before we get this process going and I get too invested to become disappointed, let me just show you what we're dealing with here. And they didn't 
raise an eyebrow and we continued and I got the job, uh, which was a lot of work because it was like, you know, kind of trying to figure out like, how do you interview to become a law professor? And in some ways it was like another acting job in a way, because it was sort of like, like, I remember like listening to, I was trying to think like, what do law professors sound like? And one of the main things that I came up with was I was like, they end a lot of their sentences with comma, right? Question mark. Guilty as charged. But like, I adopted that consciously as an acting choice. And it's like an interesting thing for me to think back on it because I understand the rationale for it in the moment of like explaining a concept to a group of people and trying to check in with them to make sure they understand you, right? However, it was also a conscious choice that I made because I was like a fish out of water, you know, trying to like convince a group of people in an interview setting that I was one of them, which is essentially the acting job that any person does when applying to to do a job, to like be a part of a team that you're not yet a part of. So anyway, I got the job uh, and that's, that's when the journey started. Mm. Um, well, it's really true that I feel like acting is such a big part and kind of an unacknowledged in many ways part of of law professoring, like to what extent do you feel like you consciously knew that part of the job was an a, was acting while you were doing it? And did you go to other? We did you go to other schools as well to interview, or just Hofstra? Uh, to answer your first question, I don't know that I that I knew it was like that conscious. I I do remember thinking about the you know the the kind of like how do i sound like one of these people thing but i don't know that i knew that that was acting i was just trying to get the job um and in a way it's kind of like that's the best type of audition prep uh and i'm telling that to myself because i think that in some ways you know when i was doing this for the purpose of getting a specific job i was probably doing better audition prep than i sometimes do when i'm going in for one line as a cop or something like that it's like okay, be the cop. Um, right. So, uh, so there's that. And then your second question, um, about what was it? Uh, Oh, when you, when you went out to interview for the job at Hofstra, was that the only job you were looking at? Yeah. So kind of, I mean, they contacted me. So like I didn't do the meat market, but then I, I got back in touch with the woman who was the Oprah woman from college, uh, who was like very supportive of me in a way. Like she didn't really know my law school experience, which was not stellar. Um, But she was like, okay, cool. Let's get you this job. And was very nice to like set me up an interview at her school for which I did go to the meat market. So I got to experience that, which I'm really happy about because like as somebody, I mean, I know you're also a filmmaker, but like, this sensibility of like, my life is a movie kind of thing. I feel grateful for the experience of going to the meat market just because it's so singular and weird. And uh, <laughs> like my experience interviewing was also singular and weird, but almost literally singular and weird. Whereas the experience of the meat market, which I'll try and do this quickly, uh, is just like, you know, everybody gathers. I imagine it'll be different this year or, you know, whatever happens in COVID and stuff like that. But like, 
there's a hotel, a Marriott in DC with elevators that don't work. And it's really wide spanning and people who are lucky have to dash between the wings of this uh, hotel that makes no sense to arrive at hotel rooms for the, you know, interviews, hopefully as many as they can get that they have. Um, For me, and maybe for some other people, I had just the one interview. So I got to like sit there as the person who totally didn't know what was going on and observe the craziness of this event. I mean, as you noted earlier, we were both at Hofstra, myself as a as a kind of a podium filler VAP and you as a tenure track and tenured professor. Um, and, you know, you were a good professor, a popular professor, I think a really interesting legal scholar. And I think a lot of people were surprised by your decision to move in a new direction. I wonder if you could talk about sort of your experiences as a law professor and why that was the right choice for you. Sure. Um, So not to jump the gun, because like my, my instinct is always to go for like, well, now I'm this and here's how that happened. And I've already done some of that. So I want to just like pause my own brain to force myself to talk more about the actual time teaching, which I appreciate the kind words about my scholarship and and the way that I was as a law professor. Um, I liked it. And I think that my change in trajectory wouldn't be the kind of positive experience that I characterize it as if I wasn't pretty happy being a law professor, which was the case. Like I, I basically quit at the height of stuff for me in a way, not to say that it was a hundred percent, everything was going amazing. Cause I don't think that's true either, but it wasn't that like, I was so miserable and then I found comedy and this was the thing that saved my life. And I, I went in another direction. It was more that I had gotten to somewhat of an apex, specifically that I had gotten tenure, which was, you know, the thing that when you, I mean, there are a lot of jobs, I guess, in in law specifically too, that come to mind where you kind of know your path at the start of the position. And so if you're, you know, an associate at a law firm, I guess like the idea is to make partner or, you know, in some ways it's like, okay, I want to like work for one of my clients or something like that and go in house. And when you're teaching, you know whether you're a tenure track professor the second you start. And so the end goal is built in to the title of your job. And so in that way, I think even if I wasn't 100% conscious of it 100% of the time, it's not like every day I went to work, I was like, and today is another day in service of my getting tenure, because that's not true either. However, I think it was present in my like forward thinking aspect of my brain of like, why am I doing this job? And I think when I got tenure, there was like sort of an existential emptiness that I experienced where I was like, okay, great. I have this thing. Why? Uh, And it wasn't, it wasn't like super miserable. It was just like, okay, I guess I could just continue like doing this for my whole life, which in some ways would be fine. But I was like having those thoughts. Like I remember Googling, how do you know what you want? Um, in a all too earnest scene from, you know, 
like girls or something like that. But like, that was a real moment for me. And I think I, it's, it's again, it's not the kind of like, I, I guess like I, I, the thing you hear and listeners may hear is like me wrestling with the hypothetical interlocutor who is like challenging me about whether I was or wasn't unhappy. Cause I guess the reason I, I, I say it this way is like, I've heard a lot of stories about people who switched careers and tracks and it's kind of like, and I knew this wasn't the path for me when, and I didn't really have that moment. It was more that I was like pretty fine with stuff, but searching, which is I think an aspect of my personality generally and always has been. And then I had a crush on an improv instructor who I showed up to a meeting like very over caffeinated for And I think she interpreted that over caffeination as stage presence, asked me if I had ever considered doing stand-up comedy. I said, no. And she was like, would you consider doing stand-up comedy on my show? And I was like, are you going to be there? Which was the only relevant thing in my brain because I had a crush on her. She was like, yeah. And I did it. And then, and this is a joke, but it's also something I said truthfully to my therapist, like when I did stand up for the first time, I felt like I was having a professional orgasm, which was basically a regular orgasm, but I was a hundred percent sure that I was having it. (laughs) Very generous reaction, Brian. Um, But and that's and that's the second time I've heard that joke today, and it was even the second time around. Well, rule of comedy is threes, so I'll find a way to tell it to you before the day's end. Um, but yeah, that was the story. And like, the thing is that that cashes out to, I had a good night on stage, at least in my mind. Uh, and on the basis of that, I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to make a career out of this. Um, and, and that's kind of what happened. I mean, then, I mean, the, the next steps were kind of divinely outside of my control, which was basically that like, maybe like 11 months later, uh, the school where I was working, which we've already named, but I always am like a little cagey at this point, just because it's like, I don't know, whatever, like a a moment that they were having like a budget moment. And the Dean at the time offered all tenured faculty members buyout packages. And it's like, I think they did that widely so as to avoid like an age discrimination lawsuit, because some institutions that do stuff like that, you know, will, will say like over 65 or something like that, because the point of a move like that, at least as far as I've ever understood it, uh, is to like, you know, an institution is paying people who may be like semi-retired anyway, and this is an incentive for them to just like leave and get off the payroll so that the budget problem can be solved. I say that having like the worst understanding of money, anything. And so anyway, so that was the offer that was made to me along with anyone else at the time who was tenured. And because I had, had like, you know, had this professional orgasm, basically, I was like, yeah, I'll take the deal. So then I had a year and a half where I knew that I was like leaving, but I was still teaching. And there, I guess it's not ironic because the irony is too well known to, for it to actually be ironic. But I think that was when my teaching really fl- flourished. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I didn't care, you know, like in a good way. Like, I think I, I have like, I have a caring for people enough and students enough to like 
you know, not give somebody who's paying for an education a bad experience. But I think that I stopped caring about being good, which is like often when goodness comes to happen, you know? Mm, Um, mm. I mean, I think I was a good teacher before, but I think I was a good and somewhat scared teacher. And then I stopped being scared because I knew that I was retiring. (laughs) Nothing more liberating. I, I mean, I can't help but wonder, like, what was the reaction of the administration when you took this offer? Because it sounds like it was maybe not really intended for you. And like, also, what were the reactions from from your colleagues at the time? Mm -hmm. Were people surprised? Did they understand why you'd made the choice that you'd made? Um, Yeah. So I remember being on the phone with the dean uh, and I, you know, was given all these options of like, you know, the way that you're explained uh, a moment like that is like, okay, so there's, there are these buyout options and here they are. And then it's like a bunch of tranches with commensurate rewards attached to them, et cetera. And I immediately said, I pick the the last one. And there was like a specific reason for that involving the number nine. Um, and so basically it was that the day after I got off stage, that professional orgasm night, I go to sleep, I wake up the next morning and I have this very narcissistic daydream where I'm a guest on the tonight show. And I am asked as the guest. So Liz, you were a law professor for a decade and then you just quit to do stand up comedy. And mind you, this is when I was teaching for seven years. I was in my seventh year of teaching at that point. And so the question was decade of law teaching. And then you decide to do stand up comedy. And in the daydream, the morning after my first stand up routine, I said, I was like, you know, actually Jimmy, it was nine years. It was a decade question. And so, and then I was like, you know, I think that's funny. I think it's funny for like a former lawyer, law professor to correct somebody who says a decade down to nine because like they wouldn't want to round up from nine to 10. And even if it's not in their favor and like, is this funny? I started being funny professionally maybe last night. Like, am I qualified to know that this is funny? And so anyway, so I I told my mom, I told my girlfriend at the time, and both of them were like, don't quit. Uh, <laughs> and and I even put printed, like I, I took out a piece of printer paper and I wrote on it, don't quit for a bit, especially if it's probably not even funny. And So I had that in my head. This was from year seven, as I mentioned, all the way through year, the next year, year eight, when I was on the phone with the dean receiving these options and the last option. So basically he's on the phone with me in year eight. He's like, here are all the retirement options. You could go half time, a quarter time, an eighth time, like all the million tranches. And then the two last ones were, or you could quit at the end of this year, which would have been my eighth year. And then the last, last option was, or you could quit at the end of next year, which was my ninth year. And I had been carrying around this like weird daydream that popped into my head the night, the morning after rather my first night on stage. And as a result of that, I was like, this is nine years. This is the, the culmination of that vision. So I immediately picked that option to which the Dean was like, Liz, you get that this isn't, it's not like the LSAT or a standardized test where you have to pick one of the options or you don't get credit. Like you don't have to take these. I just have to say them to you. And then I told him this story. So, and, and in response to that, he was like, that's very weird, but very weird. 
<laughs> oh my god, you told him that? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I love you at the end of that phone conversation. Like, I mean, because I also knew him as a colleague from like years on the faculty together, and I did and do love him. But like, it was just like, you know, it was a moment where I just kind of let everything go. You know, I, I, I guess in that moment, I was just like, it hit me so hard in terms of my own vision. And it was hard to ignore because it was so specific and weird and numeric that um, I guess I just had to. Uh, so, so that was, I mean, a short answer to the question about the administration's response was like, he was like, you know, that was his response. And then in terms of other people, yeah, I guess people were surprised. I honestly don't 100% know. I think one of the things about, you know, legal, academic, like politics, political environments is there's a lot of secrecy. Mm. And, um, and so I imagine that there was probably some talking about me behind my back or, you know, whatever, but like, I honestly don't know a lot of that, I'm sure. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, it seemed like some people were happy, somewhat surprised. I'm also not sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, from my own perspective, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, as you know, I read a lot of your scholarship. Um, it was really useful in some of the stuff that I was doing. And I always thought it was like both really kind of interesting, thoughtful, and provocative work, but also with a really strong kind of personal voice. I mean, there was always a lot of Liz Glazer and everything that you wrote in the way that, you know, maybe sometimes legal scholarship is maybe not so driven by an individual voice in that way. And I guess part of me can't help but wonder, I mean, how your scholarship and your scholarly project fit into your decision? I mean, maybe I'm projecting here, but like, kind of, did you feel like you'd said your piece in that format? when you made that decision or was that not something that was relevant to your choice? I think it's, it's a really great way and a very kind way to pose the question and also a very like good interview way to pose it in, in my opinion. So thank you. Um, yeah, I think, I think you're right. Uh, I remember whenever I would take on a project, except for when it was, I wrote a lot of like response pieces uh, shorter ones and stuff like that. And those were the ones that I really felt the most moved to write as law review, like essays, basically. But in terms of my bigger pieces, I always felt moved to write them because of what was going on in my personal life more than what was going on in the kind of legal landscape. Um, and I wrote them that way because that was what I wanted to write. Um, and I, I wrote them as legal scholarship because that was my job. And I don't know that I was 100% conscious of that the whole way through. It was just like, you know, I went straight through from undergrad or I guess like grad school technically because I like submatriculated more as a logistical feat than an intellectual one, but like whatever. But I was I was like young. I was teaching from when I was 27 through uh, 36, right? I think uh, whatever nine years is, but like, Um, so I was, I was pretty little, you know, when I was doing all that. And I think I say that because I think it was relevant in terms of how I thought of work. I thought of work as like, okay, I have to get a job. 
I will get a job. I'll do the job that is the thing that's next and in front of me. And these are the things that I have to do for this job. And also I'm a person who's growing up and thinking, and now I'm writing. And these are the things I want to write about. And legal scholarship is like vast enough as a discipline to, to like accommodate some of that. And I, I had a lot of like internal and then sometimes more like external in terms of conversations with like, you know, uh, people in review committees and also like, you know, editors on, on law review boards of like, to what extent is this a legal issue? And to what extent is this like an interesting intellectual problem? And I remember thinking about that critically towards like, you know, the end of my career, because I was like, I want to be the person who's writing about stuff that actually affects the law. But I don't know that I care enough to write 80 pages with 436 footnotes about that. But I definitely will write that about something that's going on in my head and my heart and my life. Mm -hmm. And I think in that sense, the end part of your question really is great because yeah, I think I I started to notice, like, again, with the exception of some response pieces where, you know, I would read someone's article and be like, huh, here's what I think about this article and how it responds to a larger literature question. And I had, you know, those are some of my favorite pieces just as law review articles, even though they're less about me. And I guess the reason for that is like, I think I just wanted to write about me. <laughs> well, so... Earlier in the interview, you talked about the work you're doing now as also being part of your scholarship. And I wonder if you could talk about about that, what that means to you, and how you think about the kind of intellectual work you're doing now sure. as an entertainer and a comedian. Yeah. Well, just to be to, to be sure, I mean, when I said I refer to that as my scholarship at the beginning of the interview, I did mean that as a joke. Um, but I, I do think it's a funny joke, and that is my work now. So I guess I mean it seriously as a joke, because now jokes are serious for me, I guess. But uh, but. Yeah, I I do. I mean, I'm still like in the middle of figuring this out, which I think is a great time to answer questions about it. But like, I think when I started doing comedy, one of the things that I wished for myself, both aloud and to, to myself was I, I didn't want what happened in my estimation in my career as a legal scholar to happen in my career as you know, an actor, entertainer, comedian, et cetera. Not that I, it wasn't that like it was bad, but here's what I mean specifically is just that like, I felt when I was teaching that I had some early successes. Um, like the first law review article I wrote, like immediately got accepted to like a really good journal. And I wasn't expecting that. And I, I'm happy for that, but it was also very scary because I think it, really freaked me out. Cause I was like, Oh my God, I have no idea what I did to get this to be good because it really felt like, and, and I, yeah, it felt like, was it a fluke? And, and I know that this is like a thing, right? Like imposter syndrome is a thing, but what if you're good at being an imposter? Like, I think in some ways I did understand that I was good at like, you know, adopting the, the, um, ticks in conversation, like the right thing of law professors and the way that I 
think that I got good at writing law review articles was I got this job that I felt like I was not qualified for because a lot of people who were my recommenders told me that. And also I believed it, but like all of it. Right. And then I get the job and then I'm like, okay, I have to do this thing because this is the currency of the job writing these articles. How am I going to do that? Let me read a lot of them and see what makes them good. And so I had this like very conscious, like, you know, I, I mean, I, I felt like I was reading large articles for the purpose of understanding how to do them well. And that's fine. That's fine to do. But then if you're good at it, if you get good at the thing that you did this for, then what can happen is you're like, okay, so I'm very good at, at mastering skills and imitating, but am I really speaking from my heart? And I think when I started doing like comedy and and what i'm doing now what i wanted the most was i was like i don't want to i don't want to over strategize my way to success in this um does this make sense oh yeah no okay. absolutely yeah cuz cuz i i really i really tried not to uh and thankfully i am unsuccessful enough now that i believe myself to have succeeded in not succeeding mm. um and I, I say that both as a joke and as a, a truth, because it's like, there are moments now, I mean, I've been doing this now for seven years and like, uh, you know, I think I've gotten better and stuff, but like, I haven't, I mean, I've been on TV in Canada kind of, but like, you know, there are definitely people who have quicker tracks to uh, whatever they're aiming for. Um, and you know, so, so, but I, I, I guess what I mean to say is like, I didn't want success to be too quick because I understood the pitfalls of it, I guess. Well, I think the irony for me of those observations is that as kind of a third party reader, you know, I felt like your voice in your scholarship was very strong and clear and personal and not at all formulaic. In fact, really kind of the opposite. And in sort of in a field of literature that's really dominated by very rigid formulas intended to kind of scrub out any semblance of a personal voice, your work was kind of the opposite. Oh, thanks, Brian. Um, I mean, I, I was, I did try for that also, but like, I was very conscious of like trying to place articles in really good journals because I think I was trying to make up for feeling like I didn't deserve my job. And, and I guess that's really what I mean to highlight in like the former answer. It's like, it's like, I want to be I want to be on Conan. I want to have my own show. I want to, you know, have the markers of like, yeah, you're doing great in entertainment. I want those things. However, I don't want them at the expense of me like feeling ready or, you know what I mean? And, and I, I get that it's kind of like a balance that it's like, no one's ever ready for anything, but I did feel in you know, in, in before that there were times that like, yeah, I would work really hard on writing something, but I was like conscious both of trying to be honest and myself, but also like, I'm trying to get this placed. And I guess hearing you say this, I'm kind of like, 
I mean, I said at the beginning of answering this that I feel very much in the process of this and not at the end of it. I think I could probably take a note from my former self in this world because I think I'm probably like more ready than I uh, allow myself to believe in certain moments. But I think it's because I just I'm cautious of like not not like I don't know, not being so success and robot person minded about success. Well, do you feel like you deserve the job you have now? I mean, it strikes me that like from your answers, it, 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 it almost seems like there was a certain kind of feeling of inauthenticity when it came to some of what you were doing. Like it was almost like too much of a performance perhaps as a legal scholar. Does it feel different? Does it feel more true to yourself now? Yeah, it does. And I guess like the, the kind of like next phase of it is realizing that when I'm not inhabiting a role that's like, you know, specifically like, here's how to be a law professor, here's how to be a lawyer, here's how to be a law student or any of those, um, which I think was like, almost like, like playing a character, you know, as opposed to playing someone closer to yourself or yourself um, that it can be hard to realize that that too is like a role in, in, in the good sense of it, you know, like, I mean, that's the thing about acting is like that it is actually being yourself. Um, and I guess because I felt like I was so not deserving before of being, a law professor, just to take one of the examples, like, I really was just like, how is that a thing that I am? I'm just like a child, you know, fish out of water, which is like way more what I've always identified with. Um, And I guess then when I'm given a life where I can be that just, you know, then it's like, well, how do I do that? Like, how do I, it's almost like, it's almost like uh, there's, there's, um, imposter syndrome, but what if, what if like, you know, people, society, whatever, like, what if I'm more comfortable being an imposter because that's, what's comfortable for me. And then when I'm just myself, I feel like, well, there's no imposter syndrome. So I don't know how to know when I've inhabited the role enough or something, or something like that. And I think that's kind of where I am now. Um, and I, you know, I, I mean, I feel like right now I'm having like a very kind of inward look at it and analyzing like the, the, the pieces of it. Most of my life and my day is spent like, you know, I mean, in COVID it's a little bit different because like normally I'm doing stand up every night and, uh, you know, I go to acting class every now and then I'll go to an audition. I write every day, like things like that. And so I don't like sit around spending time wondering if I've inhabited my role well enough or not. Um, but, but it's interesting to have the opportunity to talk about it because I think, I think all of what I've said is true. And also it's not something that I like occupy myself with consciously on a daily basis. Well, I mean, I have to say like a lot of your scholarship as a legal scholar Mm -hmm. focused on like identity, expression, sexuality. Um, And a lot of what you're describing now, like performance in a sense, and a lot of what you're describing now is also kind of sounding 
in these questions of performance and performativity. I mean, do you think that the themes and problems that you were working through in your legal scholarship are reflected in or inform the comedy that you do today? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think two things. One, yes, just yes. And two, uh, 2A is that I think the the kind of structure of thinking like a lawyer um, and even thinking like a legal scholar is very present in the way that I think about like constructing jokes and sets. Um, and then 2B uh, is that I think that the nature of the problems that I was most interested in is still present in my comedy. And so specifically, like when I was writing, I would write about gray areas, generally speaking. That was like what I occupied my time with in in anything that I wrote. Um, And to some degree, you know, every legal scholar does in in one way or another. Um, And I think like as a comedian, when I'm thinking of you know, topics that I talk about, it's kind of like, well, I'm a lesbian, but like, I'm not your typical lesbian. I'm a Rebbitzin, which is a rabbi's wife. And my fiance girlfriend is a rabbi, but like, I'm not a typical Rebbitzin. And so that idea, which I think a lot of comedians have that angle too, in the same way that a lot of legal scholars have the angle of like, we think it's like this, but it's really a little bit more nuanced. Um, And in that way, you know, doing like constructing comedy is not so different from constructing an argument for a law review article. Well, so I I also wonder, like, I mean, it seems like the move into comedy has been really fulfilling for you in a lot of ways, but are there any things you miss Mm -hmm. about legal scholarship, about being an academic, about teaching at a law school? Footnotes. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Blue booking. Yes. <laughs> um, although, I mean, that's obviously a joke, but like also uh, I, I've heard you say this, that like there's something really refreshing about the clarity of legal scholarship. And I totally agree with that. And I remember specifically loving footnotes and it's just like, yeah, if you say something, then cite your source. And I think especially today, not to get too political, but like, you know, in an era of like leadership that lies um, and arguably fake news and and that kind of thinking, citing your sources is really uh, wonderful. Um, And uh, something that I've always loved about legal scholarship. um, And I I think about it. I think that aspect of legal scholarship has informed the way that I think more than anything else. And so uh, one of the things I'm working on now, it's not inherently funny, um, which is my favorite kind of like, I don't want a premise that's like inherently funny. I'd rather have a premise that's like happening in my life and true, and then trying to like find the funny in it. And so the underpinning is the truth. But um but one of the things that's happened to me in the past like year and a half ish is that I've found, uh, I think it's up to 87 fortunes, like fortunes from fortune cookies, but I've found them on the ground and, uh, it's wild and weird and really specific. And like when I started noticing the pattern, I started collecting the data 
Um, and that's, you know, kind of an offshoot of footnotes, but like footnotes and data collection and just like going from empirical sources to whatever the topic is, right? Like you find the pattern in the data and then on the basis of that, you write the piece and you have the, you know, the um, research project and agenda, et cetera. And so that's an example of something that's been happening in my life that's very data-based um, that I think is like, you know, it's a project that kind of seems like scholarship um, in the sense that I've got a spreadsheet, et cetera, and, and you know, a lot of data. Um, and, you know, the idea is to like write a funny show about it and write, I mean, I, I don't, like, it's like, I, I want to write a funny show, but I also want to write a meaningful show in the same way that I think I, as a legal scholar, wanted to write something that was like important and, you know, nuanced and like helped the legal understanding of something. But I also wanted to make it like very me. Um, I think the same thing is true when trying to find topics in this world. Well, it reminds me very much of your penny project yeah which i i always found hilarious in a very kind of weird andy <laughs> kaufman-esque yeah. kind of way and and i wonder i mean i can't help but ask like i mean are there comedians or literary figures or kind of performers who you think most kind of sort of have influenced or inflected your own approach to the way you do and think about comedy? Yeah. I mean, Mike Perbiglia is probably the the first person who, what, like when I started doing comedy, because I, you know, I didn't like mean to start. And, you know, the story that I told is true. It was very much somebody being like, have you ever thought of this? And I was like, no. And so I didn't grow up like watching comedians like specifically. And so it was very much that I, after I started doing comedy, I also started uh, finding comedians, you know, to, to listen to. And it, in some ways it tracks like getting a job as a law professor and then finding law review articles to read. And I guess the difference is that I was like, I already had the experience of doing that. So I was really trying to like not fall into the pitfall of like, okay, if they're on cool channels, then I like them type, type of thing. But instead, do, do does the work that they put out map the way that I do something naturally already? And Mike Rabiglio was the first person who I encountered who did that. Uh, and so he will tell like a very long form story, at least like in his career as it is now, um, as opposed to like earlier when I think he was more of a, you know, joke writer. Uh, not that he's not, but but I think, you know, this is what he's known for now. And so that, yeah, him. Uh, but I also really like, I mean, Mike Kaplan is a really good friend of mine and an amazing joke writer and comedian. Mm -hmm. Uh, who I love to be friends with and work with. And Maria Bamford uh, is amazing. And also, you know, somebody who I've had the very deep honor of like working with now. Um, and so, you know, so those are also people who influence me because of their honesty and also like desire to tackle something deeply. Um, yeah. And then I think structurally, Mike Birbiglia. 
Well, so Liz, in closing, I wonder if you might talk a little bit about your own experiences in relation to what students, lawyers, law professors might be feeling kind of in their own lives and especially in this moment. I mean, I kind of feel like we're in such a moment of kind of unusual upheaval where a lot of people are kind of asking themselves, what kind of choices am I making and why am I making them? And I know that I've always found, you know, your kind of fearlessness really inspiring. And I wonder if you could sort of maybe reflect on, you know, sort of what it took for you to make the choices that you wanted to make and, you know, things you might be helpful for others to reflect on in that respect. Sure. Well, I appreciate you saying that you perceive me to be fearless because I don't. And any choice that I've made, including the ones that I've described in this conversation, have always felt very natural next step. And I get that like part of that was like really believing in, for example, you know, the magic of that nine year, um, you know, Jimmy Fallon, like daydream moment. But uh, so I guess you know, I, I am still a lawyer. And on that basis, I like to derive principles from particular examples in order to, you know, find a holding uh, in my own life also. And so if there is to be one, I think it's that I, I like to take seriously the, the, the thoughts that come into my head that feel like they should be taken seriously, even when they seem ridiculous. And so that, that moment after, you know, the next morning, like I have this vision thing could have been something that I thought was like a passing stupid thought. And I allowed it to take up some real estate in my brain such that I was able to call upon it very easily in this moment where the opportunity struck such that retiring, making that decision to retire, which like could seem like a fearless big decision actually felt like the most natural. I, I didn't even think about being afraid in that moment. Um, and so I get the reason for characterizing that it that way. But if I felt that fear in that moment, I wouldn't have retired. But I think that what allowed me to not was like basically believing in my own vision. And so you know, I guess in this moment specifically, like I don't do comedy in the same way. Cause like there aren't live stages and people and all that, but I've pivoted in a way that seems to make sense. And so, you know, one of the things that I've had a vision for, for a few years at this point is a television show about my experiences. And I've always had the vision of it coming from original footage. I've like, I love original footage. Like I've always loved it shows on television and, and like, I loved the documentary Amy uh, and I watched it four times in the theater. And I was like, why, why am I watching it this many times? And it's great and sad. Uh, And Amy Winehouse is amazing, but I was like, what is it about this documentary that keeps me coming back for it? And I was like, Oh, I think it's that there's original footage. And my favorite show was the wonder years. But then when I started thinking about why I was like, I think I like the theme song the best. Um, which looked like original footage. And so I say all of that because in this moment, we can't shoot new things. We can't do a lot of new things, but I've been 
deep in my own archives of videos that I've had from, you know, a long time and have kept, I don't know why. Uh, but I, I guess like in the moments that I feel like I notice a pattern in my own life and I'm like, I've always been obsessed with this. Why? Let me dig deeper in it. It doesn't feel fearless because it just feels like I'm following my next obsession. Um, and so if that's helpful for anyone to know that that's really the way that I perceive myself to have made the choices that I've made, then it's, it's true. So yeah. I mean, it just seems like maybe it's okay to listen to yourself a little bit more. It's so easy to listen to other people and so hard in some ways to listen to the voice in your own head telling you what you want. Yeah. I think that's very true. And it's hard for me too. So I don't mean it like, you know, I've solved it. I'm just trying to kind of, you know, figure out what it is. Well, Liz, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is a really fantastic conversation. Um, yeah, yeah. And, um, and hopefully we can talk again soon. I would love that. Ha, 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 ha,
Oh, <laughs> 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 